From the journeys of belonging to blackness, blackness, blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Good day, folks. You are in for a special treat. A little different from the traditional run of show, for this episode, you will listen to a pre-recorded interview I conducted with Haitian-American activist, professor, scholar, and author Regine Jean-Charles about her latest book, Martin Luther King and the Trumpet of Conscience Today. Part of the year-long Reimagining Together speaker series that was held at Northeastern University in Boston I sat down with Regine to kick off her book tour a few months ago. We discussed the book, her inspiration for this work, and the tenets of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's Trumpet of Conscience in today's society. So sit back, relax, and be prepared to be engaged in a spirited conversation on love of people, social justice, and the possibilities for imagining what can be. I know that for me personally, um, our field of Africana studies would not exist if student, af- if student activists had not imagined their universities as places where knowledge about black people could be taught, affirmed, and created. For me, as a Haitian-American woman, I come from a people who had to imagine a world without slavery in order to be free. So in my teaching, my writing, my activism against gender-based violence, I belong to communities where we're actively trying to imagine a world without sexual violence, for example. So I invite you to imagine with me. Today, as I'm speaking, I want you to imagine, what does the call to conscience look like for you? We each have one. What does it look like for you? I want you, those of us, my students in my classroom, and um, those of us who are in Africana Studies, I want us to imagine what kind of program do we want? Here at Northeastern and CSSH, which kind of community do we want to create? How do we create a more just society, a more just campus, more just classes? These are all questions that I encourage you not only to ask yourselves, but to actively answer them, seek to answer them in a way that makes an impact in the world. So my book, The Trumpet of Conscience Today, was born out of a desire to reimagine how we remember, memorialize, and learn from the teachings of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. So I've told this story, I I think I've told this story many, many times, but for those who haven't heard it, um, the story behind this book is, uh, let's see, it starts in 2019 when I was a professor at Boston College and I was invited to do one of those Martin Luther King keynote breakfasts, right? It's always a breakfast. So many breakfasts in the month of January, right? And so I was invited to be a keynote, and this was a very large event. Usually there are about 500 people there, um, and it's a university president, president's office level, right? So it's, it's quite large, but it's sponsored by the Black Faculty Staff and Administrators Association. And so they invited me to give the keynote, and I knew that if I was going to talk about Martin Luther King, I had to do it in a way that was not, I always say, that took him out of the box, right? So I was so aware of this box 
that Martin Luther King had been put into, the I have a dream box, the colorblind society box, right? The, the, the peace box. And there's so few, he has so many teachings and so much writing that many people are not actually familiar with, that we like the little snapshot, right? We even just like to say MLK. Right? We don't even say Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King all the time. Um, and so I was really determined to think about King from a different angle. And that was when my, one of my dear friends, Sawika Colbert, I don't know if she's on here, but she advised me to look at the Trumpet of Conscience. And the Trumpet of Conscience are a series of lectures that King gave in 1967 for the Canadian Broadcast Company, the CBC. And there are two really important things about these lectures. First, he was not given a topic. So he could talk about anything he wanted. He has five speeches in that series. Um, they include uh, the conclusion, which is called A Christmas Sermon on Peace. He has another one on nonviolence in Vietnam. So it's really a range of topics. Um, but it's so important because in that, in that set of speeches, he writes, quote, not long after talking about the dream, I started seeing it turn into a nightmare, end quote. And I thought to myself, my goodness, if people knew about this speech, would they always use I have a dream as their one King speech that they quote or that they want to memorialize in January? And so in writing this book, I had two goals. Number one, I wanted to encourage people to read beyond the dream. That is to explore King's lesser known work, especially the trumpet of conscience. And then most importantly, in this book, I wanted to reflect on what do we learn when we take the insights from these lectures, they're also called the Massey lectures, um, and apply that wisdom to contemporary social justice movements, specifically Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and prison abolition. And the reason why I wanted to do this was because these were movements that I had taught about, that I had thought about, that I felt passionate about, um, that I had organized around also. But I felt like oftentimes there was this dissonance where people thought people weren't seeing this one long continuous black freedom struggle, for example, or this one long continuous struggle for justice. And so I really wanted to use the trumpet of conscience as a lens for looking at these movements. Okay, so now I'm going to read the pass a passage from the book for you before India interviews me. Okay, so I have to also confess that I was going to read a completely different part of the book. I was going to read the introduction. Uh, which I think is a really great kind of overview of where I'm going. Um, but then I just, I felt compelled, also because my students in my gender and black world literature class are here. Uh, I wanted to read something that was specifically about gender-based violence. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, and so it's a, a topic that is very close to my heart. And you know, my book's um, epigraph is by Audre Lorde. And she says, there is no such thing as single issue struggles because we don't live single issue lives. Ending sexual violence. If we do not stop to help the rape survivors, what will happen to them? On the second, sun on the second day of Christine Blasey Ford's testimony before the US Senate Judiciary Committee in 2018, I could not stop crying. I wept intermittently throughout the day for reasons related to Blasey Ford and beyond. Ford testified to address her allegations that Brett Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted her almost 40 years prior. As a black feminist and scholar and activist, the hearings for me were painfully reminiscent of the Supreme Court nomination hearings in the 1990s when Anita Hill testified about her allegations of sexual harassment at the hands of Clarence Thomas. On the second day of Blasey Ford's testimony, I was traveling from Boston to Chicago for the 20th anniversary celebration of the performance Story of a Rape Survivor. After boarding the plane, 
I accidentally put my coffee on the wrong seat while placing my luggage in the overhead compartment. The coffee spilled. When I returned to what I thought was my seat, a white man was waiting for me and furiously started to shout at me for what I had done to his seat. I tried to explain that I thought the seat was mine and that it was an accident. He continued to shout. He called me stupid. I asked him not to raise his voice. Eventually, the flight attendant intervened, and I went to my correct seat. And the women around me looked at me sympathetically, but I could not stop crying. When the flight landed in Chicago, I saw reports of Dr. Blasey Ford on screen, and I began to cry again. Quote, I am not here today because I want to be. I am terrified, end quote. Dr. Blasey Ford said, the terror was audible in her voice. It seemed to tremble with her every word. I was crying for her and for all of the survivors that I know. I was crying for those who shared their stories in public and for those who never would or never could. I know from the work that I have done with survivors in my research on rape culture that coming forward to share stories of sexual violence is already challenging enough without the pressure of a national and largely unsympathetic, I would add hostile now, you always find edits that you want to add after the book is written. It's so annoying. Hot, unsympathetic and hostile audience, let alone being televised while doing so. I was crying over my sadness at the small and large injustices that occur every day and that women have to endure. And they train women and girls to believe that we do not matter as much as men. I was crying because I remember being in eighth grade when Anita Hill testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I remember when Clarence Thomas was just appointed. I was crying because I know too many women who do not feel that their voices, their stories, their trauma, their lives matter. If we really believe that in King's words, injustice anywhere is indeed a threat to justice everywhere, then the forms of injustice that are gender specific should be of concern to anyone who cares about justice. Taking these words seriously means including sexism, misogyny, transphobia, and homophobia in our march to freedom. Although King is hardly known for waging a struggle against sexism and misogyny, any accurate application of his message requires attention to the ways in which sexism, patriarchy, misogyny, and gender inequality are also concerns of a faith that does justice. Many of his positions in the trumpet of conscience can be applied to the movement for gender equality in general and more recently, the Me Too movement in particular. A better model and his contemporary who explicitly championed the rights of women as she participated in the black freedom struggle was Fannie Lou Hamer, a civil rights and voting rights activist who not is not nearly as known as King, as well known as King. When Hamer famously declared that nobody's free until everybody's free, it was not in reference to race. Everybody means every human being, regardless of gender, sexuality, age, or ability. Our freedom relies and depends on the liberation of others. Individual freedom matters little without attention to the collective. Lesbian warrior poet Audre Lorde unpacks this point even more explaining, quote, I am not free as long as any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. And I am not free as long as one person of color remains chained, nor is any one of you, end quote. 
our freedoms are linked. If we are to dream the revolutionary dreams that Nikki Giovanni alludes to in her poem earlier in the book, I talk about the poem, then we must advocate for people who are different from us. Although King often mentioned the poor, marginalized, and vulnerable, he rarely, if ever, mentioned women. Central to his philosophy was the idea that the struggle against injustice must include people beyond those it victimized. In other words, non-black people need to work alongside black people in the fight against racism. Wealthy people need to join the fight against social inequality and poverty. People of all genders must be engaged in the fight against sexist discrimination and gender-based violence. Despite King's failure to address gender injustice and inequality, his philosophy suggests that we should pay attention to every form of injustice, including the oppressions faced by women and gender non-conforming people. When we read the trumpet of conscience carefully, signs of this appear throughout. I guess, so we, well, we can talk about that passage, maybe India, that will be the first question, but I, I, it felt uh, right in my heart to read from that passage, although it's a very strange thing, you know, because I've written academic books, this is my first trade book, and it's so, you're so, it's so much more personal, right, and vulnerable, although I felt very connected to my first book, and I feel very connected to the other academic book I wrote, but um, this one is much more personal in terms of, I share about my life, you know, as a parent, um, as a daughter of immigrants, as an activist, as an organizer in my town. You see, you know, my friends from my town here too who also works in Northeastern. Hi, Milton friends. Um, and uh, as a person of faith. And so um, I wanted to share that passage because I think that does give you a real taste of kind of how personal the book is in addition to blowing out some of these larger questions about social justice, about black freedom movements, about um, faith and social justice, et cetera, et cetera. So I now have the pleasure of introducing my friend, Dr. India Lorik Wilmot. She is a writer, sociologist, public scholar, and digital creator. As an educator at Northeastern, India is an affiliated faculty member of the Africana Studies Program and a senior lecturer in sociology in the College of Professional Studies. She was the inaugural scholar in residence at our John D. O'Brien African American Institute. As a public scholar, writer, and social researcher, India's publications and research projects focus on issues impacting diverse racial and ethnic immigrant communities in the Americas. She's the author of two books, Creating Black Caribbean Ethnic Identity, 2010, and Stories of Identity Among Black Middle Class Second Generation Caribbeans, We Too Sing America, 2017. As a digital creator, India's digital media project, Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, this is the podcast I was talking about, which includes a YouTube channel and a podcast, endeavors to amplify and center the positive experiences of African descendants in public discourse. The podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness, has listeners in 30 countries worldwide and is available wherever podcasts are accessed. Thank you, India, for being in conversation with me today. Oh, good afternoon. Thank you for that lovely, lovely introduction. I appreciate it. And I loved your remarks. Thank you. Yes. So I think in many ways to kick off our conversation, I think it's necessary for me to give a prelude. And so some of my uh, thoughts and musings around reading this deliciously wonderful book. So there's an urgency we see today in both global media 
and academic works to discuss themes such as black liberation, sovereignty, racism, poverty, war, gender equity, migration, and the mobilization of young people, right? So whether we're talking about the global public health pandemic of COVID-19 and its disproportionate impact on communities of color, the working class, women, and the undocumented, whether we're also exploring these themes when we're talking about the global pandemic of systemic racism, with the murders of so many African-descended people, including right here in the United States, with Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Ahmaud Arbery, which right now there's a murder trial happening. Mm -hmm. Hopefully people are tuning in. And then not just here in the US, but in Brazil and France and other places. We're also talking about these themes in terms of the mass migration of Haitian and Central and South American men, women, and children arriving at our US southern borders, seeking asylum, fleeing extreme gang violence, kidnapping, abductions, rapes, murders, and political unrest. Unfortunately, these magnificent divisions that persist not only in terms of public opinion and in discourse, but in terms of economic, racial, social inequalities, and the treatment of black and brown and trans bodies by government-sanctioned and a militarized police state has remained a mainstay in public consciousness. So for the purpose of our conversation today, these divisions go as far back to the winter of 1967 when Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. provided his own testimony in a five-part lecture series for the CBC, referred to as the Trumpet of Conscience. And now we have your timely book, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Trumpet of Conscience, today, wherein you look to three contemporary social justice movements, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and the prison abolition movement, and gold readers to not only reflect, but also employ the tenets of Martin Luther King's lectures. So for me, your book does a type of constant reappraisal mm. of what it means to be human, when there's constant flux and challenges that impact specific populations within the confines of structural inequalities. You goad us to interrogate our own conscience to determine what is right and what is just for all. So in effect for me, and I hope that this goes the same for readers in the audience, that your book provides a space of reckoning wherein we can reflect and return to the history of the past so we can examine how to proceed and envision the present and the future. It is my hope that our conversation this afternoon serves as a reparations of imagination, right? The new ways and epistemologies of how we can endeavor, uplift humanity, and triumph as a peoples. So for those, and I know you listen to my podcast, you know I like to peel back the onion a bit. Yes. And so one of your parting remarks when you left the podium, you were reflecting on what this book means to you. Mm. And so I'm gonna ask you on the personal side, as a black feminist scholar, a cultural critic, a child of Haitian immigrants, and a self-identified follower of Jesus, personally, why this book? And why now? Thank you, India. You know, it's it feels very personal for me um, on the one hand, because I think about it in terms of my career also. You know, just I started out at Boston College, which is a Jesuit institution. Um, and a lot of the talks that I gave, actually, a lot, so I was looking at some of the chapters, and there, sometimes I would, you know, I drew from talks that I gave. Um, and so it, it's things that had kind of been building, I think, for a very long time in me, right? So even if I think about my time at Boston College, the work with A Long Walk Home, 
um, the work which shattered the silence. Um, even the church that I go to, actually, this year was the year of justice in our church, right? So, so even as I think about, you know, I can't think about this book coming out without thinking about it in a very personal way, um, just in terms of where I am in my career. Also, we know that in academia, you, you know, they say you write your first book to get tenure, and the second book you write because you love it. I don't agree with that because my first book, I loved it. I really <laughs> loved writing it. Um, but it is true that I wrote that book to get tenure. I couldn't have written this book and gotten tenure, <laughs> right? Um, because it's a trade book, right? It's not an academic book. Um, so it, it is, on the one hand, for me, very personal. Um, but then there's also, we're in this moment, right, as a culture, and I see it with my students, I see it with you know, the young people that I encounter and that I work with. We're in this moment um, as a culture where justice is really kind of having the layers of it pulled back, right? People are finally understanding that you know, when you say Black Lives Matter, too often it felt like women weren't included in that, right? Even though women started the movement. Um, but that it's not just enough to say black lives matter. You have to behave as though all black lives matter. It doesn't matter if they're black trans lives, if they're black queer lives, if they're black poor lives, like do, or do, if they're black Haitian lives, right? Um, last week I was at a conference with um, Ayanna Presley and she kept saying, you know, Haitian lives are black lives. So all the people that are standing up and saying black lives matter when Haitians are mistreated at the border, they need to stand up and say that, right? Black lives matter around the globe. So I think what's happening with these movements, and we can say that, you know, for really for each one of them, there's this peeling back that's happening that's causing us, um, well, I hope, that's causing us to think more in an interconnected way. And I was so struck because King, that was one of King's central messages in the Trumpet of Conscience. Everything is interrelated. Everything is connected. I'm like, this is what black feminists are saying. King was a black feminist. I discovered it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, you brought up that word reckoning. And it's a word that, to be honest with you, I hated when you know Harvey Weinstein and the second wave of Me Too, and we all know Me Too was founded by Tarana Burke, um, but then it was kind of reignited, right, in, in 2016, 2017. And I hated this idea of, because I felt like people were saying a reckoning with social justice or a reckoning with racism, and it meant that everything was going to be fixed. But you know, for me, as someone interested in language, I'm like, you know reckoning, I-N-G, is the gerundive right? Mm -hmm. It means that it's ongoing. It's not like a reckoned. It's not like it's been reckoned. It's a reckoning, which, mean that, which means that that work is ongoing. It's not a quick fix. So that's the other thing that I'm thinking about, is that some of this working out, the peeling back of the layers, is in fact that reckoning. It is the gerundive ongoing work of this movement towards freedom and liberation for all people. No, I really appreciate that, which is why I framed it as a reckoning in that way, in that the book in and of itself creates that space so that we can be engaged in that dialogue with ourselves and then with others in the community when we're passing around the book to say, did you read this? What did you think? Let's be reflective, right? And that's part of that reparations of imagination mm -hmm. that you're that. calling us to yeah. do. I'm going to jump around a little bit, and I think I want to focus on the lectures specifically for Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And in the book, you also cite to it, but he oftentimes refers to that there are like these triple American evils, mm -hmm. racism, materialism, and militarism, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it's really talking about the function and the material of power, mm -hmm. right? And so given that, I often reflect on the activity of decolonial love. Mm -hmm and how depending on the situation, it requires taking up of arms in protection of people and for justice mm -hmm. from the horrible legacy of colonial violence, right? And I also think about the quote by my favorite author, 
RG Lord, when she says, quote, sometimes we are blessed with being able to choose the time and the arena and the manner of our revolution. But more usually, we must do battle where we are standing. And so decolonial love implies restructuring the world. So is it possible for justice and decolonization efforts to be without violence? Oh, you know, this is, I think about this a lot in relation to, um, you know, some of the teaching that I've done over the years, right? So you know that I taught as a, well, first of all, I have to say as an anti-violence activist, I'm like, I'm not going to say that we need violence. I will never say that, right? That's something that I will never say. Um, I do think specifically uh, with regards to that idea of battle, I do think that, you know, it is a fight, right? Like it is a fight. Um, that there are literally people that are fighting for their lives, right? That it's not this kind of, that the, the, the fight doesn't feel always just metaphorical. Mm. You know, I think about something like transphobia and the number of black trans youth we have that are suicidal, right? Like the numbers are staggering, right? So when we say that we have to be a community that loves everyone, that is inclusive, that tells children, all black children, that they matter, regardless of how they identify, what their pronouns are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that feels very real to me, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the stakes are very real. I think that, you know, I think that as you consider the, the you know, the, the so I was going to refer to some of the teaching that I've done over the years, especially in the French departments, right? Teaching about Senegal, teaching about um, a lot of these places in, uh, in, in French-speaking West Africa specifically. Um, and how, you know, Franz Fanon, for example, from Martinique, right? He wrote about, he wrote about the colonial struggle and he, he wrote that there can be no decolonization without violence. That I agreed with at the time, right? Because again, we're thinking about it specifically within that time of the 1960s. I think when we talk about decolonial love though, um, that, that to me there's like, in order for, right now, when we're talking about something that's decolonial, I think we have to wrest ourselves from that violence, right? And I think that we have seen too many examples of how violence, people in our communities have been targeted by violence that I'm just not someone that's comfortable. Actually, if you read my first book, you would know that I don't like metaphors about violence at all. <laughs> that I actually, it's something that drives me crazy. And part of the reason why I wrote that book, that first book, was because I got tired of people using rape metaphors. You know, I remember I got into an elevator one time about when I was at Boston College, and a student said, oh, that test raped me. Mm. And I was like, wow. and so I take very seriously the use of the, that language of violence, the lexicon of violence, um, and the work that it's doing. Because whenever we say that, there are, you know, when people say, oh, the rape of the African continent, we can, we can talk about slavery or colonization as the rape of the African continent. That doesn't account for people that have actually experienced that, right? And so I really try to give a, a kind of survivor-centered, I would say love and justice-centered view of sexual violence and all forms of violence, I would say. So I don't think I really answered your question about, you know, I, well, you know my stance on violence now, and you know my stance about violence metaphors. Um, but I think that it's not, you know, we, we just have to remember that, that it's not, as a black feminist, I'm always trying to collapse this binary between theory and praxis. And, you know, I even tell my students, like, these things that we're talking about in the classroom, they have a meaning for people's actual lives, right? Um, and we can't forget that. And I think that's what I appreciated also about writing this book. And, you know, my, my partner always jokes that, like, he's like, oh, this is finally, you wrote a book that I can give to people. 
Um, because, you know, it is written, like it's written in very plain language. There's not, I, I do not use epistemology. I use it many times in my first book, and I use it many times in my third book, but I don't, I, I even think about like what kind of words are we using that might even alienate people, you know? Um, and so my desire was really to bring people in. The last thing I'll say about this is, I really love um, this quotation by Cornell West where he says, justice is what love looks like in public. Right? And so what love looks like in public would never include violence. I love, I love that. And you know, at least for me, when I thought about, all right, so what question am I going to ask? And you know, again, of course, in the academy, there are so many buzzwords. <laughs> it went from post-colonial to now decolonial. And, and right. How many people even know what decolonial means? <laughs> and it's like so sexy. <laughs> But you know, one of the things about the concept of love, when I too was reflecting on this question, so I appreciate for you, you know, the utility around the lexicon of violence and what that means metaphorically. And then I thought, well, you know, love is actually something that's quite powerful. Mm -hmm. And perhaps you'll disagree with for my framing, <laughs> but I think love is violent in the sense that if if the intention is to, particularly when it comes to decolonialization, mm -hmm. where it's a revelation around the ways in which we have these, um, these, where we're informed by these structures of oppression, then love fractures that. And love is so powerful that the violence of it is so disruptive. Yeah, I would powerful, never agree you know? with that because I can't think about Baldwin love does and that. violence without thinking about, you know, um, even like teenagers, right, that I've worked mm -hmm. with who are dating, right, who are in teen dating violence relationships. Mm -hmm. And so I can't, like, that's what immediately comes to mind, gotcha. right? So I'm like, no, I'm like, because there's a teenage girl that is dating a guy that just slapped her or mm -hmm. punched her and thinks that that is love and thinks right. that that's, you know, so. Yeah, and it's a mm. challenge because Baldwin, James Baldwin also mm -hmm. contends with this, particularly in his book, Go Tell It on Mountain, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where when he's talking about discrimination and what it is to be embodied physically and metaphorically as a black person, mm -hmm. he uses faith mm -hmm. in the same way as Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King talks yep. about faith yep. as to why he chooses nonviolence, but the structure of love itself is violent in the system of white supremacy, mm -hmm. not so much as interpersonal, but I understand. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I kind of reflect in that sort of interesting dichotomy of looking at the power of love, which is why people were very uh, reticent and rejected his approach to the concept of love as part of being faith-based, as mm -hmm. a part to his methodology around civil rights. Right as well, but we can continue to talk about this <laughs> offline. I, 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 I want to ask one last question, and I get this because you start off with the book talking about the Good Samaritan ethos, mm -hmm. and you also end the book that way. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, you cite to Carl Wendell Jr.'s poem, A Dead Man's Dream, so and good. quoted, it is easier to build monuments than to build a better world. Mm -hmm. And so for me, we would need to have a genealogy of freedom, okay, in order to understand the entanglements of modern capitalism and our efforts for freedom so we can build a better, a better world, right? And so that would require serious efforts. So if, you, if we were to employ the Good Samaritan ethos, how do we engage in the intellectual, social, political, and economic practices of freedom that can positively amplify humanity globally. So the reason why I use the example of the Samaritan, and I love my friend, um, Quentin Powell, who's a dear friend, um, who gave, I, I can't remember if he was giving a talk, and he gave this talk where he taught, he 
pointed out that if you read the passage, it doesn't say the Good Samaritan, right? That we as a culture have decided that we should call this person the Good Samaritan. Um, and so what I love about the Samaritan and the way that King uses that in the Trumpet of Conscience is that um, it, that's actually not from the, that's actually from, uh, I think, letter from a Birmingham jail, actually, that he uses this, that, that example of the Samaritan. But I use it in the book because yes. I, it, it inspires me. Um, and it inspires really the frame of the book, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when I said, if we do not care about the rape survivors, what will become of them, right? So the story that King tells is that what happens to the Samaritan, so the reason why we know this difference, and for people that don't know the story, it's a story about you know three people. So there's a man lying on the road. He's been robbed and beaten, and um, three different people walk by. And the only person that stops is the Samaritan to help him and puts him on his way and gives him food and clothing and sh makes sure he has shelter and gives him the, the, the coat off of his back. And King says, what distinguishes the Samaritan from these other people is that the Samaritan, the other people said, oh my gosh, if I stop to help this man, what's going to happen to me? Whereas King, the, the Samaritan says, if I do not stop to help this person, what will happen to them, right? So you see the difference. So again, let's say, you know, my friend is, is experiencing something, right? Or I'm talking, this teen with dating violence that I'm dealing with, and they call me and they're like, Professor Nochelle, can I talk to you right now? And I could say, oh, okay, what's going to happen to me if I stop and take this call when I have to go pick up my kids from school, and then I have to go teach, and then I have to make sure I've put in that article or I have to do this other thing, right? What's going to happen to me or what's going to happen to this person, right? And this is what Tarana Burke actually means when she talks about empowerment through empathy, right? That we have to do our activist work from a place of empathy. Um, so for me, you know, a good a Samaritan ethos is actually one in which you would be putting that other person at the center. So it's exactly what I say about you know, a survivor-centered ethic or um, what, would, what, what will become of the Haitian refugees if we do not stop for them, right? If we do not speak out, you know? Um, and I think that that is always displacing yourself. That kind of ethic is about displacing yourself from the story and thinking about who the most marginalized, the, most, the person who is most at risk, the person who potentially will be the most harmed in whatever the scenario is. And I don't think that this is something that only applies to, um, I think that this is something that you can employ in your, like your daily life, right? I think that this can happen in the classroom, um, that this can happen in your households. Um, and that if we constantly ask ourselves that question, so this person that is the most marginalized, that is the most oppressed, that is the most vulnerable, that is the most potentially harmed in this situation, what will become of them if I, and this is not to say so in like a, a missionary way, right? It's not like I'm the savior, I'm going to come help this person, I'm going to fix their lives. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about like, let's all go do community service because we're going to save the children in Roxbury. No, that's not what we're talking about at all. Um, but what we are talking about is, you know, an understanding that we each have a call to conscience, right, to bring it back to the book, and that there is some ways that if, you, if you're willing to displace yourself, there is something your conscience will tell you, something that your conscience will prompt you to do. Um, I do have one last question, and I think it'll be helpful in terms of, you know, a nice segue, right? And it's around the fact that, yes, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail, as you paraphrased, we must be proximate to injustice in order to combat it. And one of the things in his impasse of race 
um, lecture is, and I thought it was really interesting when we were to, you know, if we were to employ it and apply it today with um, Black Lives Matter, because he makes the remark that says that when blacks saw injustice, right, they saw a need for freedom and liberation, whites saw violence. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in many ways, we're, when we're all in this pandemic, people's reactions to seeing the murder of George, George Floyd, yep. some saw this is a cry in need for liberation. Folks were shocked with the violence. So what does this proximity look like when folks make the distinction when they assert being an ally versus an accomplice? So, okay, I just wanna say something quickly. So I think that, so what you're saying is that people branded it as violence, right? So that some, you know, we know that like, the, the cry of the rioters, the cry of the unheard, right? So we know that like those uprisings um, or rebellions, um, as Tiffany Hinton calls them, um, were not violence, right? That they was, it wasn't mm -hmm. the violence. And often, as we know, as with January 6th, it also depends on who the color, what the color is of the person, right? Um, who, who is uh, being the insurrectionist. Um, so I just wanted to just be very clear about this distinction. So you're saying that some people see it as violence whereas others see it as? So in, in the lecture, mm -hmm. King actually says that with all of the unrest that was happening mm -hmm. and the rebellions and right. so forth, that the perception was that blacks or African descendants themselves saw that this is an opportunity and a cry out for liberation. Right, right. right? Yep, exactly. And according and, to him, mm -hmm. whites of that time saw all the things that they were seeing play out in the media right. as violence, mm -hmm. hence the motivation as to what called them to action, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And so he proceeds to go on in the lecture to talk about, uh, you know, my our white brothers and sisters band banding together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it took me to just even when we talked about George so Floyd. So you see a parallel I what see you're a I see a parallel, okay. right? In the sense of, well, mm -hmm. how is it being framed in public discourse, Absolutely. right? Yes. And then I see a distinction between the ways in which people self-identify and mm -hmm. insert themselves mm -hmm. to say, I'm an ally. Yep. But then others are saying, no, I'm actually an accomplice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? I don't think that many people are saying that. I think that that's another thing that we, that we um, you know, is slowly kind of happening, right? So mm -hmm. I think that the language has been a language of allyship. I don't like that language because I think it creates a distance. I believe that either you care about a cause or you don't, right? Um, so again, if it's a human rights issue, I don't need to call myself something special just to be, you know, stand up and hold my sign or be an anti-rape advocate or what have you. Um, and so I don't like the use of the term allies because I just feel like either you care about it or you don't. The call for accomplices or co-conspirators, which is a trend that we're seeing a lot in this right. past, you know, you think about, Oh, uh, Ijoma Oluo, or mm -hmm. all these books, How to Be Less Stupid About Race, all these books that are coming out, you know, the, the writing the anti-racist wave. <laughs> Those books aren't my favorite, I have to admit. Um, but uh, the wave that we see now is people are pushing back against the use of the term ally and encouraging people. Instead of just, ally feels passive, right? Whereas an accomplice is, I'm actually going to give up some of my power, or I'm going to do something. Um, in order to move this struggle forward, right? Uh, another way that people talk about this is saying, you know, spending your privilege, right? Because a lot of times with students, you know, they'll say, you have these students that tell you, I'm aware of my privilege and I know my privilege is this, that, and the other, but are you willing, and that's great, awareness is great, but there's another step, and another step after that, and another step after that, right? So to me, that's what, I guess, your question, your framing about ally or accomplice, um, that's how I think about that. Well, your book definitely charges us in us to consider our conscience, right? 
So I know we have to table this part, but thank you. This was really thank interesting you. and compelling. We have lots more to talk about. We do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.